it feels like you're always being watched and you always have to have a story ready. You always have to have your ID ready. You always have to have your insurance, you know, everything, anything and everything. We, we cannot let them have a chance to detain us even further because, you know, God knows what could happen. Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Are you an inventor or do you know an inventor? Welcome to the Border Chronicle. I'm Melissa Del Bosque, co-founder, along with Todd Miller, of the weekly newsletter on the U.S.-Mexico border from a border perspective. You can follow more of our work on thebordercronicle.com. Today, I'm speaking with Roberto Lopez with the nonprofit Texas Civil Rights Project. Lopez is a senior advocacy manager at TCRP. Born and raised in South Texas's Rio Grande Valley, he leads the organization's Beyond Borders program, which works to improve civil and human rights for border communities and people migrating through the borderlands. The Texas Civil Rights Project, which was founded in 1990, was inspired by the United Farm Workers Movement, and since then has increasingly taken a stand against the illegality of Texas's Operation Lone Star, which is a state-funded deployment of National Guard and state police to the Texas-Mexico border. Under the initiative, which began in March 2021, asylum seekers and migrants are charged with criminal trespassing when they enter Texas, then held in state-run prisons. Thank you for speaking with us today, Roberto. I'm really glad to have you on the podcast and looking forward to learning more about the work you're doing on the Texas border. Um, First of all, well, you grew up in the Rio Grande Valley, which I've been reporting on South Texas since the late 90s. And in the last decade, the increase in militarization, policing, and surveillance is really astonishing, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley. And I'm wondering if you could talk about your experiences growing up there and how that militarization policing has affected your family and the community as a whole. Yes, thank you so much for having um, the Texas Civil Rights Project on your on the podcast, Melissa. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about the border and everything that goes on in South Texas. Um, the Rio Grande Valley is such a special place in my heart. Um, I think everyone who comes from the area you know, we have our Puro 956 um, jokes and slang, and it's just something that's been so beautiful to me. Growing up, um, it's changed quite a bit. I first found my love for the river uh, by, you know, going with my mother to her classes at the University of Texas at Brownsville at the time, which is located in Brownsville, Texas, right on the river there. And in some of the areas that we used to walk around, she you know, studied biology. And I had the chance to also learn about the ecology of our home. And in some of the areas that we would walk around, there's border wall up now. And, you know, you can't walk uh, a few minutes without encountering border patrol or some sort of local state law enforcement. And it, you know, while the militarization has definitely been growing since since I was born in the nineties, it has definitely exploded, um, especially after nine 11. And I think for border residents, we have elders who talk about moving back and forth so freely. 
And unfortunately, this is something that I've never really gotten the chance to enjoy or experience. And for most of my life, um, the border region, I think, has been a place of, you know, mass surveillance, um, always being followed by some sort of local law enforcement when you're trying to enjoy some of the some of the ecology that we have in the environment. Um, I'll sort of end with just, you know, one memory that I have in my early 20s or mid 20s, um, going with some friends to Monty, which is a, um, you know, centuries old Montezuma bald cypress tree along the river. And it's right behind the border wall there in the Rio Grande Valley. And on our way to go visit, we encountered five different law enforcement agencies. We encountered county police, Texas DPS, Federal Protective Service under DHS, the uh, Border Patrol, and also um, some form of, of uh, military or National Guard. And, you know, we almost, my friend who was with us um, was questioned um, by DHS, and it was very scary. We thought that she might get detained. And, you know, that's life on the border, which is to say that when you want to enjoy or experience some parts of your home, there's always the risk that you're going to come under scrutiny or be questioned or be stopped by people, um, by by state law enforcement, just because you're walking around and just because you're um, living in the area and, you know, look different from, from other people who um, make up the U.S., yeah, and, I, and I'm glad you, you sort of talked about what that feels like, because I know we use the term a lot, border militarization, and it seems like such a sort of clinical term, you know, uh, what exactly does that mean? And 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 you, I think you just did a pretty good job of explaining that. Um, and and so uh, I appreciate you talking about just sort of the, the human impacts of, of that just you know, over-policing and surveillance. Um, yes. and, and I have one more thing to add, which is, you know, over the years, half of my family has been, uh, is now employed, or a good chunk of my family are now employed by DPS and ICE. And so it makes it extremely difficult when, you know, your uncle is doing well, having, is, you know, has a job, uh, he didn't finish college. And because of the, hiring surges with border patrol that is how he was able to um you know move up in terms of economic mobility and unfortunately that's also another reality is that some of our families benefit from the very things that we are surveilled by so it is such a complicated uh story and um also makes for very um rough thanksgivings yeah i mean that's the fascinating complexity of it all, right? Because it is a major employer in in the in the valley and and a really effective ladder into the middle class. I mean, those are good paying jobs, right? But at the same time, they're they have uh, serious detriments to the to the communities as well. Yes. Uh, and so I wanted to ask you about Operation Lone Star. If you could talk about, you know, for listeners who don't know much about Operation Lone Star, uh, can you tell us what it is and what it does and about your work organizing against the militarization and border communities around Operation Lone Star? Yes. So I think you gave a, a really great explanation at the start about Operation Lone Star. And 
it is Texas mobilizing state law enforcement, state resources, personnel, material, all for the purpose of enacting um, state-based border enforcement. And we, I think, in, in the most recent weeks have all seen what this looks like uh, thanks to some some really great reporting and really incredible activism out of the Eagle Pass area. Um, Governor Abbott continues to just dig deeper into his political strategy. And, um, you know, I think all of us have watched the buoys uh, go up. We've seen concertina wire by the miles be unloaded along the river um, in in Eagle Pass and just large stretches of the of the river's um, banks and riparian um, ecosystem has just been shredded and removed. And so, um, you know, Operation Lone Star has been in existence for about two years. It's not one specific law or policy or practice. It's a series of them. And it operates thanks to, you know, local acquiescence, state aggression, and federal indifference or federal inaction. What we've been trying to do, um, because this has so many different layers to it, is um, apply pressure to all three levels of government. And, you know, unfortunately, in the first year, we filed a complaint with the Department of Justice, um, a Title VI complaint, trying to remove funding for Operation Lone Star because it has uh, racist um, ends and means. And yet, uh, you know, the Department of Justice to date still hasn't formally announced an investigation into uh, into Operation Lone Star. We know thanks to um, some really great reporting that the DOJ has been communicating with Texas, but, you know, no formal announcement has been made. And unfortunately, pressure on Operation Lone Star from the feds has been limited to things like this, the buoy lawsuit that uh, recently um, came down. We had an order come down and then there was a stay on that order to remove them. Um, and that was just the buoys. There's such a larger system of Operation Lone Star in effect. And so the federal government has proven to not be the most uh, supportive or aggressive um, strategy to take. And personally, I, you know, being from the border region, having been an activist at the Texas Civil Rights Project, uh, also in the RGB, um, I know that border communities are severely underfunded, under-resourced. I know that we have drainage problems. We have yearly flooding. Infrastructure is um, inadequate. There are the best jobs are, you know, employers uh, are, are the government. And um we needed to build up the infrastructure uh, for organizing along the border. Um, we have incredible uh, resources in places like El Paso and the RGV. But part of the genius of Operation Lone Star is in areas like Kinney County, which are very rural and far removed from more urban metro areas, there aren't as many resources for organizing. And people have been scared to talk out or to fight back when there are you know, even militia groups coming to these communities. And so the federal government has uh, not been very supportive. The state has been aggressive. And the question that I've had for the last few years and several of my colleagues and uh, folks at other really um, wonderful organizations, we've been trying to figure out how can we support border organizers, um, support the fight along the border as best we can. And I think 
you know, for the first time, uh, maybe a month ago now, we saw an incredible win come out of Eagle Pass, where residents from the region, from Del Rio, Brackettville, um, Eagle Pass, of course, Laredo, El Paso, um, organizations such as mine, you know, I, I now live in Austin and also traveled with other colleagues from the area. We all turned out at this city hall meeting and got the mayor to rescind a, a, a trespassing affidavit, which is what allows Operation Lone Star to work in that area. And it's very complicated. There's, you know, they're still able to charge folks. But I think what that win showed is the border is getting stronger. We are mobilizing. We are building up a network thanks to um, years and years of, of work that has been put into our communities. And um, where we're at right now is, I think, unfortunately, continuing to see Abbott dig deep. But at the same time, border communities are responding in kind. And I, while while everything that is happening is sad and tragic, I am inspired by the work that everyone has been doing, and I feel like there there is some new hope um, in the near future. Yeah, that's really great to hear. Um, and and all of the movement around Eagle Pass was uh, really really encouraging, and you know. Having written about the Texas-Mexico border for so long, often the response I get from people outside of Texas as well, that's just Texas. They're crazy. They're out of control. And they kind of just wave their hand and like, you know, I mean, do you feel like you all are getting support from organizations outside of Texas that could help? Are, are they coming to like reaching out to you and saying, how can, how can we help on the Texas, Mexico border? Yes, for sure. There. And you know, one thing while Texas, yeah, Texas is Texas is Texas. Um, Florida is also Florida. And so with respect to operation Lone Star, we've also had Florida state police and several other state law enforcement agencies send their folks down here. Um, we, over these last few years, we have had the chance to meet with organizations uh, in Florida who are also very worried about Governor Ron DeSantis taking the same approach that Texas has. Um, there are folks in D.C. who have been very supportive in trying to get Congress to act on this. Uh, Representative Joaquin Castro just um, you know, uh, talked about filing an amendment to try and strip some of Texas's money. Um, um, and you know, trying to stop Governor Abbott from continuing to do what he's what he's doing. Um, there's also several other organizations like the Southern Border Communities Coalition, which takes part in in meetings. You know, they're a collective of uh, of orgs from San Diego to Brownsville. So, um, you know, yes, while while the fight I think largely is going to depend on Texas voices and border residents and folks who are most directly impacted, there is definitely. Um, a network that is supportive across the across the country, um, and it's in large part thanks to folks in in DC um, who are able to get us access to uh, the cap to to the hill and um, you know call out what the governor has been doing. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the Florida troopers because that was my next question. So at least 14 Republican-led states, including Florida, have sent police and National Guard to the Texas border as part of Operation Lone Star. So you've got this wild 
thing where you're driving around Mission or McAllen and you're seeing a Florida Highway Patrol car on the road, right? And so do we have any idea like what their rules of engagement are regarding uh, use of deadly force and police conduct while they're working in Texas? Is there any visibility as to what their duties are and what they're doing exactly? Not to my knowledge. And we, you know, the tech, we at the Texas Civil Rights Project don't know what was, what's been kind of funny in a sad sense is um, the Brownsville mayor recently tweeted out a picture of Florida State Patrol in his city. Um, Brownsville is so far from Eagle Pass and Del Rio, where a lot of the efforts in Operation Lone Star either, you know, receive support or um, troopers are very much concentrated in these areas. Um, and so for me, it has been so stunning to see Florida State troopers in places like Mission McAllen, um, in Brownsville, areas where the governor hasn't sort of, you know, been concentrating um, the troopers as as much um, as he has in the last few years. And so, um, though, of course, I don't want to dismiss that there's like a, a really massive police presence in these communities. Um, but no, I, I mean, that's a big question for us is what exactly are they doing? And when we talk about law enforcement in border communities and uh, the operations that they conduct, it's often in very rural, remote parts of the state. Um, even if you're in a metro area like Brownsville, if you're out by the river in more of a rural part of the community, you know, you may not, you may never actually get good footage or we may never have uh, folks who can have a phone out uh, and record what Florida state law enforcement could be theoretically doing. And so I think that that's what's really concerning is, you know, we could see a situation where a Florida law enforcement agent um, goes well above and beyond what is probably their, uh, their authority. So, you know, typically what I, what I imagine is when it comes to supporting state law enforcement, um, we often hear legislators or the executive talk about um, providing logistical support or um, administrative support, things that aren't more directly apprehending and seizing arresting people. But when this stuff is done in the ground, on, on the ground in remote areas where there's so little oversight and where you're basing most of your um, evidence on the officer's statements themselves or uh, you know, immigrants who are going to be then taken to a whole labyrinth of uh, incarceration at different levels of government, um, it is really hard to fully know what the heck goes on on the ground, uh, even if we were to have a memorandum of understanding or um, a memo outlining their policies, procedures, you know, you can never really know what the heck they're doing out here. Right. And, and, and a lot of Texas elected officials from the governor on down, uh, Republican officials are using this rhetoric of, you know, we're under invasion, the great replacement, racist, great replacement rhetoric. Uh, They use it quite a lot. And so how does it feel to be in a community where it's being portrayed nationally as being under invasion and you not only have like local police, state police, but you've got police coming in from other states as well. Um, yes. It must feel 
pretty oppressive, I would think, or I don't know. Uh, what have you heard from residents? Yeah, I, residents have been extremely angry with the amount of times that they get pulled over, for instance. Um, I think this is limited to state police, but I know that people do see it as an occupying force, you know, like uh, just one day I'll, out of the, out of the um, out of nowhere, um, a few years ago, that's when Governor Abbott started to really concentrate state law enforcement and um, state military in places like Brackettville. And that just sort of changed people's lives. Um, I know uh, I know of an individual in Kinney who has been pulled over eight times within one year. Um, for my family in the Rio Grande Valley, uh, my mom travels to San Antonio for medical visits pretty frequently, you know, like once a month at least, um, if not more. And she was talking to me yesterday about a, a white uh, border patrol officer at the checkpoint, um, really questioning her and like, you know, where she, where exactly she was born in South Texas. Um, my dad, who is a little bit more lighter complected, wasn't asked that question. Um, when you think about Florida, state police or other uh, National Guard or folks who are in these areas, oftentimes, and as well as CBP agents, they're rotated out or um, they may not have the cultural competency of these areas. And so that also might lead to just some really uh, dangerous interactions. And I also think um, with what we've seen Border Patrol agents do in the past in terms of killings, of locals such as, you know, trans folks, um, as well as white nationalists shooting up places like El Paso, it is extremely concerning to have uh, so many often men um, come to our communities who may not fully know much about the region, who have been, you know, spoon-fed the rhetoric of an invasion, and then they're walking around with so much power um, and authority and a sense of authority. And so I know uh, from hearing from family, from friends um, that, and from some of my own experiences driving around and just taking pictures of birds or trying to document border wall construction, that it feels like you're always being watched and you always have to have a story ready you always have to have your ID ready. You always have to have your insurance, you know, everything, anything and everything. We, we cannot let them um, have a chance to detain us even further because, you know, God knows what could happen. Yeah. And one thing I've been curious uh, about for a long time is, you know, obviously we're, we're going into the presidential election season. We're launching into that, God forbid. But uh, what types of impacts of all of this over-policing, does that have on like voter turnout? Does it, uh, you know, intimidate people? Do you think it will affect the next election? I don't know. To be honest, I feel like the border is such a complex political space. One, one thing that I always worry about as we, you know, as decades pass, as more, as more and more funding goes to Customs and Border Protection or DHS and now state law enforcement, some of these guys make, I know DPS for sure, they can make easily like $130,000, $150,000 a year thanks to overtime pay that they're getting. 
And so in one way, this is creating a whole constituency of uh, generations of folks along the border who have a vested interest in seeing this work continue, who, um, you know, their livelihoods are based off, based on this, based on incarcerating immigrants, based on surveilling our communities. And so in one sense, um, we're funding a population's interest in continuing to have border militarization. So I think that that is one way it affects voter turnout. People might want to support uh, Trump or um, policies that that Trump um, really pushed forward or you know, even President Obama and Bush before that. In another sense, um, I know it has also angered folks and hearing how much overtime pay uh, troopers out of the region get um, watching, you know, ticketing rates go up in their community, uh, people also get very angry. And then one other um, scenario as well is that I think some border residents are, are also tired of their community continuing to be talked about, neither the state nor the federal government, um, both Republican and Democratic administrations, have provided meaningful solutions. And so some people might also just be resigned and may not care to vote because of the lack of change um, and the the lack of solutions. And so there are so many ways, unfortunately, that I think this goes. And I don't um, quite know what I do. What I do know is that our communities are so underfunded and so under-resourced that it is vital that in our organizing work we talk about how, you know. $5.1 billion um, for Operation Lone Star, billion, another four, around $4 billion for, for the border wall back in the Trump and now into the Biden administration. That is money for the yearly flooding that devastates people's houses and cars and communities uh, for the drought that we're experiencing across the border region. Um, for the lack of healthcare, the local, you know, meth production in places like Kinney. And so what we're going to be trying to do certainly is tying um, all of this focus on border militarization and what governor the governor has been doing to um, the deep needs that folks along the border region have. Right, but they're but they're just not getting all of the money. These billions are being funneled into policing and walls yes. and border bu border buoys and uh, and the like. Um, yeah, I wanted to segue into so several bills, I think were passed in the last legislative session regarding Operation Lone Star and expanding its powers, and yes. I think three of those. Uh, laws just went into effect on September 1st, and I was hoping you could talk a little bit about those laws and, and the kind of impacts they're going to have on border communities. Yes. So this legislative session, just kind of also zooming out a little bit, was one of the most you know dangerous that we've seen um, with respect to border issues. Um, we're still very worried about a border force bill coming down about um, more hateful legislation to incarcerate more folks rather than truly understanding the the root causes of migration. Um, but 
we already have these uh, really harmful bills that have come out. There's Senate Bill 1900, um, which adds a foreign terrorist organization designation to many statutes uh, dealing with with criminal street gangs um, or criminality. And what I think the state is trying to do is up the rhetoric even further to and one thing about the the foreign terrorist organization designation it it's the the language that the state uses is so broad it is um you know when two or more folks commit criminal activity or conspire to commit criminal activity across um across uh international lines so you know not just in the US but in Mexico and if if that if if those conditions are met then they are designated at they could they could potentially be designated as a terrorist and put onto a terrorist database and so you know what i think legislators are trying to do is take the rhetoric up from disaster and invasion to we have foreign terrorists on our soil that cartels are terrorists and we need to take wartime powers or do something to stop this so that's sb 1900 sb 1484 um, and 602 are bills, are, are laws now, sorry, that are uh, really expanding local law enforcement and uh, CBP's powers. So 1484 is a training program for local law enforcement on border operations. Um, I think it would give them more access to like what's going on, uh, what DPS troopers are looking for. They It may increase um, local law enforcement's connections to DPS operations. That one is worrisome. 602 also gives Customs and Border Protection, so Border Patrol agents, the uh, ability to search, arrest, to to arrest, search, and seize anyone um, who they have probable cause to suspect has committed a state felony offense. And you know, like I don't know how you, it's it's sometimes it how you suspect someone is committing a state felony offense can often. Um, there's often a, a quick line that could be drawn to just racism. You know, I this person smelled a certain way. We've heard DPS troopers say say that in an affidavit that that's how you can tell that someone has crossed the border. And so, um, I I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I I could see Border Patrol also taking a lot of um, I don't know taking taking a lot of uh, flexibility on this authority and. Um, doing whatever the heck they want to arrest folks under state charges. Um, thankfully, you know, 602 um, is supposed to limit Border Patrol's powers to ports of entry, um, checkpoints, and under the conditions of detainment. But with how close these officers all work together in Eagle Pass, CBP and DPS are stationed right next to each other. You know, we could have a situation where Customs and Border Protection are just arresting people and then handing them off to DPS um, and pursuing state charges um, and not fully doing their federal duty first. So, you know, it's I think we're going to have to see how all of this plays out on the ground, how fo how a foreign terrorist designation plays out, how creating uh, more training programs for local law enforcement and how expanding Border Patrol's powers to arrest and, and seize people under state law. Um, this is all theoretical uh, in text, at, at least um, you know, prior to, to September 1st, 2023. But now 
Um, we're going to have to watch and sort of see what's going on on the ground. And of course, it's always going to take some time for us to understand the impacts just because of how remote this stuff is because of all of the all of the things that have to happen uh, just right for us to meet with the right client and hear the right story um, about the abuses that go on. Right. Yeah. Like you said earlier, it's very hard to document the abuses because a lot of this, you know, the Texas border is a vast, you know, 1200 miles and a lot of it is rural and, uh, and all of it, most of it is, is private property. So there's very little visibility as to what, what they're doing on, on these properties. And it's interesting, you know, I wonder what the federal government will say about this, uh, you know, border patrol doing these state felony uh, convictions, you know, because I, they've already they already complained that they're overstretched with yes. the current duties that they have. So, um, and we've ha we've seen uh, customs and border protection agents from um, areas like the Del Rio sector attend state legislate uh, state hearings and request support and so you know they're they're allowed to have some like a, a type of activist role in this work um we tried to raise that with dhs apparently it is consistent with their practices that that cbp troopers can go to state hearings and talk about the importance of having expanded powers so yeah it is really concerning because they at, on on the ground there is so much autonomy that they're given and are these union, uh, Border Patrol union members who are going and giving testimony or just rank and file agents? Rank and rank and file agents. Wow. That, yeah, yep. that's that's really something. Um, I want to ask you, uh, a while back on the podcast, we had Bob Leibel, who was with Grassroots Leadership for a long time in Austin. I, I'm sure you know him well. And yes, he's, he's, he's now with, yeah, he's now with Human Rights Watch. And we were talking about the Border Protection Unit bill, which was basically a state, a state sanctioned civilian vigilante groups that would go out and basically hunt migrants. Um, what is the status of that bill? Uh, I don't think it made it through the legislature, right? But are they still trying to revive it and, and pass it in the next session? So that's correct. That Thankfully, that bill didn't make it out of the regular session. Um, there were several really horrible pieces of legislation that died, um, in large part, I think, thanks to activism, but also, and, and just the good work that we've been doing to try and educate lawmakers on the impact that these bills will have. But also, um, they died in part thanks to interpersonal squabbling with some of Texas's leadership. Um, and so what that meant is we have been waiting for these bills to come back in a special session. Um, right now, there's so much going on in Texas politics. We have an attorney general who's being impeached. We have, um, you know, other issues like school vouchers also up for debate. And so, what we're what we're thinking is um, that we will have an additional special session in October, um, either on school vouchers or um, on. Um, or I should say, I don't know, privatizing education, um, or on the border. And unfortunately, in the first special session, so after uh, May of, of 2023, in, this, in the first special, 
um, we saw three bills come forward. One was a, a, a form of the border force bill trying to create basically a state border patrol. The other is an improper entry charge. And that is replicating 1325 federal code uh, of unlawful entry. And what this would do is really solidify Operation Lone Star in state statute because um, they wouldn't have to jump through the extra hoop of the trespassing charge. They would just be able to charge folks for not entering um, at a port of entry. And so I think you know we're, we're very concerned about an improper entry charge coming down. Um, and then the third bill, which has very much been Abbott's priority and which many Senate Democrats voted for, um, is the 10-year mandatory minimum sentencing for folks convicted of human smuggling. You'll, and, and on that last one, you know, we'll often hear senators talk about some of the worst forms of human smuggling, which is when, of course, you know, you have dozens of folks crammed into, into, into vehicles and who are, you know, sometimes left for dead. Um, the way that Texas's human smuggling statutes are written, it's so broad that it could also impact you know, just having an undocumented person in your house and across the state of Texas, that is that that's just so many of us, so many mixed status families uh, who would be at risk of being charged and sentenced uh, to 10 years for having for taking an undocumented um, family member to a medical appointment, for instance. If if you get all the all the right officers who are having a bad day, um, theoretically, like under under these proposed statutes that could happen to a family member, just driving driving a mom or driving a dad to to a doctor's visit. So, you know, we're waiting on this state border patrol bill, we're waiting on the improper entry charge and on this 10 year mandatory minimum sentencing. We'll see what else they try to cram into a special. Um, there in, in some of the bills during the regular session, there was language like deter and repel. And we often tried to get the lawmakers to talk about, you know, what that would look like. And we've seen that on the ground in Eagle Pass with children being forced to wait in the sun um, in 110 degree weather without get, being given water. And so, you know, I really hope that what we've seen play out this summer, um, ham, you know, really, you know, I hope that what we've seen play out this summer blunts the momentum on some of these bills, but you just can never tell with Texas. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to thank you so much for, for, for talking to us today. And I, I just want to ask you, so what inspires you to keep working on these issues and, and what gives you hope looking forward? I think Yes. What inspires me? I don't know if you've had the chance, Melissa, to meet, um, you know, folks like uh, Juanita Valdez Cox out of um, Lupe or Ramona Casas out of Arise in the Valley. But, you know, there are some really badass 70 year old women in the Rio Grande Valley who are fighting still, who have been fighting their whole lives. Um, we have immigrants who have crossed thousands of miles and endured so much assault uh, only to be only to land in a Texas prison and still continue to fight and tell their story. That is Roberto Mejia from grassroots leadership, thanks to their work in bonding out the Segovia 11, um, who were men that organized um, in state prison. And so thinking about my our elders in these communities, people who've been fighting their whole lives, thinking about the migrants' journeys, um, 
I am so privileged and, um, you know, if they can do it, I can keep going. And I think the last thing I'll say is I keep thinking about our beautiful river, about our beautiful home, about my mom taking me out to um, the now UTRGV campus. And our place is so special and it deserves so much. Our families deserve so much more. And it's that the mosaic of all of them that I think keeps me going and keeps me hopeful that la lucha sigue, the fight is still going and we're still here. All right. Yeah, I've had the uh, the honor of, of of interviewing Juanita and Ramona, and they are amazing. Yeah, there they is are. just some just really, so much energy. So much. I don't know it's how they do it. Very inspiring. Well, thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Melissa. I love your work so much. I love what you and Todd do. I'm so grateful to also be able to speak with y'all, and I hope to um, you know continue to do this work with y'all in solidarity. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the Border Chronicle podcast. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This episode was edited by me, Steve Heiss. If you like what you're hearing, please consider rating us on your favorite podcast platform. It will help other people find the show. You can read and listen to more local border journalism on our website, theborderchronicle.com. 